Hi, my name is Ryan Duncan Ayala. Hi, my name is Annika Perez Krikorian. Hello, my name is Jacob Santos, and, and you're listening to Affirmative Reaction. Hello, and welcome to Affirmative Reaction, a critical theater pod from a BIPOC theater squad. I'm Ryan Duncan Ayala. I'm Annika Perez Krikorian. And I'm Jacob Santos. So if y'all don't know, this is sort of part two of a two-part arc that we are doing of two companion pieces, The Blacks by Jean Genet, which we did as our historical classical piece last time, so two weeks ago, and now we are doing Les Blancs by Lorraine Hansberry, which was a sort of response to or came out of response to Lorraine Hansberry seeing the Blacks. So they are companion pieces. We're going to be touching on points that we made back in the Blacks episode. So they are sort of companion pieces. If you would like more information, if you'd like to run the saga all the way through, you can go back and listen to that episode. But otherwise, we're going to jump in with our hot takes for this week. So I guess I will start. My hot take this week is that y'all hate on Next to Normal too much and it's unwarranted, and it's unfair, and y'all need to stop. Okay, moving on. All right, I'll go. Um, I don't, this is like a hot take, but not a hot take. So we know Scott Rudin. (gasps) We saw The Hollywood Reporter and every other article that suddenly came out after that, anyways. Uh, that's not my hot take. It came out uh, eight to twelve hours after that, if anything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Full twenty. Well, full full twenty four hours actually. Full. I think the next one was slate full twenty four hours later. Yeah. Uh, but suddenly people had the urge to write about it. Anyways, that's not my hot take. Uh, my hot take is that though I believe that we should just cut off everything Scott Rudin from the industry, and from all industries. Listen, Jack Black in School of Rock is just. So compelling. The movie, not the musical. We're not going to talk to uh, talk about the musical. That's a whole separate thing. But the movie School of Rock still slaps, and I won't stop watching it. And I'm sorry. Canceled. So anyways, uh, <laughs> my hot take for this week is that Mr. Joe Biden is very much like a lot of the white people in this play that we're about to read. All right, let's get into it. <laughs> Wow, wowie, <laughs> wow, wowerton. Um, I'm about to Venmo you 20 bucks, Jacob. Because... <laughs> just for that. Just for that. Oh, and I would like to make, since we're on the topic of Scott Rudin, I would like to make an addendum to my first ever hot take from the Slave Play episode, which is that I was right. I was right. I told y'all to kill a mockingbird was suspicious. And y'all were like, what do you mean? I was right. And I would like my flowers, please. <clears throat> but honestly also if you try to stop watching everything scott rudin's ever done it's like trying to stop watching anything harvey weinstein's ever done those men are so fucking powerful and have produced like so many movies that you honestly can't escape them and it kind of sucks yeah anyway let's you get into that. it let's do it oh le blanc by lorraine hansbury I'm going to give you a summary just in case we have any fans who are listening who, you know, want to just get it spoiled for them. So Les Blanc, which translates to the whites by Lorraine Hansberry. So it opens up with 
this American reporter, journalist, he comes to this fictional country in Africa, but it's basically a fictional South Africa. And he goes to this mission in this fictional country in Africa. And the mission is like this hospital that was started by this reverend years ago, and it's been operating for like over two decades. And his name is Charlie Charles, you know, it's like some, you know, bland American name. Charlie Morris. Charlie Morris. Yes, Charlie Morris comes. He wants to rise around the mission, the culture, and like the tensions that are happening in Africa between British occupiers and then the native people there. So he meets different characters there that work at the mission, like Marta, Martha, one of the doctors, nurses that works there. The wife of the reverend is there. And the reverend is, he's off doing something at the beginning of the show and for most of the show. He's either like doing baptisms or he's sort of looking over services. Um, the Nielsens, it's Reverend Nielsen and his wife. Mm -hmm. They're both much older. And Marta is a doctor. She's significantly younger. She's like a young doctor. And then we eventually find out that there is a revolution brewing up from the native people there and we, we find this out because there's this man named major rice who comes storming onto the mission and he's like y'all ain't following the rules like these people are dangerous like you can't be trusting them don't go out follow the rules etc cetera, etc cetera. and then eventually we are introduced to uh chembe who grew up on the mission but he eventually left africa to go explore the world he's been to america and he eventually settled in europe he got married to a white woman there had a child but now he has come back because his father has passed away so he comes back and he meets his younger brother eric and he's surprised that he came back because like chembe was like really successful the really smart one and then he went out into the world so they're like oh chembe you're back Brother Eric is is mixed race, and their other brother, who I'm going to try to say his name right, Abiose. I looked it up right before. I'm pretty sure that's Abiose is his brother's name, and he comes, and it's revealed that he has converted to Catholicism, and that is like creates a lot of tension within the play, and especially between the two brothers, Chembe and Abiose. And so, like, eventually they go to the, their father's funeral. It's a very traditional African funeral that's, like, related to their religion, et cetera, et cetera. Things start to get out of control as things go on. Chembe and the American journalist have discussions about race and colonialism. And Charlie is very much like, Chembe, why can't you get over this race thing? Like, you really hate white people. Like, why do you hate us? Like... I'm not even those kind, I'm not even that kind of guy, but he is kind of that kind of guy. And oh my gosh, there's just so much that happens. But eventually Chembe finds out that his cousin Peter is a part of this revolutionary group who is trying to drive the invaders back into the sea. So basically this revolutionary group wants to take power back of the country and push out these British colonizers, invaders who have like taken over, colonized their land and taken over and like they're like the ruling government. And while that's also happening, there's this other figure that doesn't appear in the show, but it's often referenced very much. And I forget his name, but he is like one of the other revolutionaries, but he's the more peaceful one. And he speaks out for, for the country, but he does it mm -hmm. in a peaceful way. Kamalo. Kamalo, yeah, exactly. And then there's many people like saying that Kamalo should 
talk out against the revolutionaries that are trying to take over because there's been instances where like the revolutionaries have attacked houses of like the rich white folks and like murdered them or like committed crimes against them etc cetera, etc cetera. so like there's some groups that want him to speak out against that there's other groups that don't want to there's other groups that thinks he's sort of irrelevant now like the times for peaceful talks is over now and like the only way now is like protest through violence but eventually <laughs> this white government asks him to come to the country to have discussions but like once he lands in the country they arrest him immediately and like that's when we start getting to the end of the play where people find out he's been arrested so Shembe wanted to go and talk to him to give him to, he wanted so okay so Peter was like we're doing this revolutionary thing like right now and Shembe is like no wait let me talk to Kamalo maybe he can uh, have some peace negotiations like give me give me a few days or give me a week and he basically lets him and while Chembe is going to go find him he finds out he's been arrested so then it's really 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 too late revolution starts and, but his brother Abiyose rats out Peter because he finds out he's part of the revolutionary group so major rice comes to the mission kills peter after like humiliating him he like makes him grovel major rice i think is is one of the sort of like white commanders he's been very vocal about like the blacks and like they're subservient to us like major rice is very much like black people are animals and we need to treat them as such so he makes peter like grovel and then literally just shoots him dead yeah so like joe biden i mean major rice is like a very you know not great guy in this story um and you almost say joe biden oh (laughs) (laughs) so yeah and then like it's not only the british government that is forcefully going back at these revolutionaries like even like american military comes to support them with like helicopters and air raids etc etc and then the show ends with like major rice he comes in he says oh the reverend's been murdered he's been killed but don't worry, like, we have all this backup. This revolution is going to be stomped out, like, in a few days. So, like, the ending scene is, like, the funeral of the reverend. But then Chembe is having a conversation with his wife. And he's, like, she asked him what he's going to do next. And he's, like, I don't know. She was, like, you should do what your heart is telling you to do. And he was, like, you know what? You's right. So he ends up joining the revolution. And a lot of the revolutionaries come and attack the mission. They blow it up. The reverend's wife is killed. She's shot. Yeah, that's sort of how it ends. And Shembe kills his brother. Oh, T, yeah, that also yeah. happens. Shembe kills Abiyose and then, like, cries about it for for Africa mm-hmm. kind of thing. For the cause. Um, yeah, but he doesn't, it's not like he does it, like, gleefully. He really, like, is in pain about it. Mm-hmm. So that's, like... A small summary. We'll get into more finer details of the story when we get into the discussion, but like here is a small background of the play. So, of course, it was written by Lorraine Hansberry, and it was actually not completed before she died of cancer at the age of 34 in 1965. And actually, her last journal entry, like why she was in the hospital, she spoke about her like final wish was for someone to finish Le Blanc if she could not. And eventually, that of course that was the situation she passed away so her husband uh robert uh, nemeroff he completed the play after her death from several drafts that she left behind 
So eventually when he did that, it eventually ended up debuting on Broadway on November 15th, 1970. And it ran until December 19th, 1970. So basically just like a little over a month it ran for. And Lorraine considered this to be one of her most important work. She actually considered it to be her magnum opus. And as we said before, this was written as a response to John Genet's uh, The Blacks. And she specifically thought that his depiction of colonialism was too romanticized and wanted to create a more realistic take of African colonialism. And uh, a more recent production of this show it hasn't been produced very much, um, but a recent production was at the National Theater in London in 2016. And that production was filmed and streamed on the National Theater's YouTube page during the pandemic. And it's probably also streaming on their streaming service. So that's a little bit of a background. And also about Lorraine's hand, Lorraine Hansberry, a little bit about her. She was the first Black woman to have a play produced on Broadway. She was one of the youngest playwrights to have their plays produced on Broadway. She was also um, <laughs> followed and investigated by the FBI because of her political views. She was more anti-capitalist, very, you know, Marxist. So the FBI <laughs> was following her heavily. So she was, and she was also gay. So she was iconic, y'all. Lorraine Hansberry was that girl. So that's a little bit of background about her. And yeah, we can jump to the play now. This play is epic. It is heartbreaking. It is mm -hmm. beautiful. It is intense. And it's better than any play Arthur Miller has ever written in his life. I what? cannot believe that this, that first of all, Lorraine Hansberry in general, besides A Raisin in the Sun, which is programmed in the diversity slot, every other year. I am so mad that this play does not get its flowers because reading this play, I was like, oh my, the fact that I had never read this play before, first of all, the fact that I had never even really heard of this play before at all in her, mm -hmm. in terms of her work, ridiculous. It's, it, it's so fucking epic and incredible and like amazingly written. I mean, obviously like incredibly written and like heart and like, like truly like mythic yeah, and it, it doesn't surprise me a little bit when you get into like the history. So like a little bit, even though this isn't about Raising the Sun, a little history about that production. So when that was produced on Broadway, there was there was like a movement of like white theater critics that wanted to paint that show as like, oh, it's not really about black people. It's about like a family. It's like a universal theme. So like that show and, and like surprisingly like we see that become like the diversity slot thing but like Lorraine Hansberry was like no this is very much about black people and this is like a form of protest but like so with that show like white audience members and like white American theater found a way to whitewash it in a way and take away its protesty elements but like Le Blanc you cannot do that like this is very much about colonialism does not have a lot of great things to say about white people in general, but also Americans as well. So the fact that like she was followed by the FBI to make sure like her Marxist, communist, anti-American ideas were not spread. It doesn't surprise me that this didn't have the same amount of success that like Raising the Sun had, just because like America did not want this story to be as widely told as some of her other ones. Right, but I, I mean, I think about like, so many of the movements that this would have been incredible to ha to have this piece on Broadway like during fucking apartheid during mm -hmm. you know why was out of Africa the smash hit of like whatever 1987 or whatever fucking year it was but this play was like not and I know why like of course I know why but it just I'm like it's it's so cowardly to to keep this hidden in her oeuvre I guess and like mm -hmm 
only like literally uh, looking at the wikipedia the only other significant production that is mentioned is the national theater production of 2016 that's 45 years that this play has fucking sat on a shelf when it is one of the best classical you know in my opinion in our in our definition classical plays that i have ever read i i am fucking heated y'all i am heated out of my mind i am i can't even <clears throat> anyway well, somebody that's my first that's my first thoughts honestly that was my first thought when i finished yeah. this play so like i was just about to say uh i think we have moved past the need for first thoughts in this in this specific play one first thought that i did have that isn't everything that annika just said can we just call james earl jones a legend for also being in this play I would like to dive into a little bit, actually, the way that James Earl Jones operates in the Blacks. The, first of all, the fact that he was in both. Legendary, iconic yeah, exactly. king of Black theater. But second of all, he played Village and then Shembe. The two roles that are so steeped in colorism. That's so interesting to think of him as Shembe, right? Because Shembe is, is, is the one who is most connected to the culture, the customs, right? And Abiose is the one who's trying to like approximate whiteness. So when we're literally, if we're literally going to have that conversation about color again, that James Earl Jones looks more like Eric than he does like Abiose, if you go Ooh. from the text, mm. is so interesting as a casting choice. And like what changes when Abiose is not dark, like a dark skinned man, especially marrying a white woman, having a biracial baby who then probably looks essentially white. Like the implications of a super light-skinned Shembe, I don't know, well, let's talk about it. Yeah, kind of speaks to the idea of the American theater when when these both were performed. I think it, it speaks mostly to the fact that James Earl Jones is an iconic actor and also, you know, Shembe and Village were kind of like, maybe this is a hot take, but like the best characters in, in the shows. I mean, we heard about the white casting director in The Blacks. Homeboy didn't care about colorism because he could he could pick them or whatever the hell. So I feel like it's a difference of thought process between how we cast shows now and and thinking about that versus how they did it in the 70s and 60s. I'm pretty sure like they knew how Lorraine Hansberry felt about The Blacks and like knew... James Old Jones was in that production there, which is like, oh, well, she wrote this in response to that. So let's get at least the main actor from that and put him in this one. And like, that was like the longest running um, off-Broadway show at that time, The Blacks. People who were seeing Le Blanc had probably already seen The Blacks. So they were probably also making that connection of just like, this is like that, but better. <laughs> you know, and I want to talk about briefly the audience experience uh, because it was such a integral part of the blacks so so obviously the blacks was written for the whites and then the immersive theater in the 70s when we open up this script and and turn to just literally page one and it is five minutes of audio immersion that's a long time that is a long time imagine you're sitting in a theater rip am i right uh, but imagine you're <laughs> sitting in a theater in 2021 it's five minutes before the show people are still bustling in things like that and then you just hear the sounds of nature around you for three minutes 
And then for the next two minutes, you hear the sounds of drumming getting louder and louder and more consistent. The American theater audience would not know what to do with themselves. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I apologize. But the only reference point I have for that kind of immersive experience is Rainforest Cafe. (laughs) (laughs) And I remember loving being in the Rainforest Cafe because that shit was on 24-7. Hmm. so anyway i do think the power of an immersive audio experience is really important and the fact that this was happening in the 70s is really cool i also appreciate the playing with an audience's expectation of africa from the start like as much as that that space is beautiful it's also very conventional in terms of the way we think about sunset over the horizon animal Mm -hmm. sounds powerful warrior women like it very much sets that expectation and then to literally burn it all down by the end. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. that shit's powerful. And I'm so glad you brought up the the topic of the audience because in the script I read, there was like uh, an afterwards that talked about like the critical reception to this play on Broadway. And let me tell you, the audience members were incensed by this play. Like it was... The way they described it was like you could feel it almost similar to like when we talked about slave play, like how white audience members and black audience members reacted to that very specifically and very differently that like you could feel each racial group in that audience. So like one of the critics at that time was describing like how it felt like so like when Chembe was saying something that like exposes like one of the white characters awfulness, like the black audience members would cheer. But like when the American journalist is trying to combat Chembe on like his ideas about race and like, oh, you hate white men, don't you? The white audience members would cheer. You could feel the tensions in that audience space. And like some reviewers were were like, this is the best play ever. Some reviewers were like, this is absolute trash. Like this was like a super provocative piece when it hit Broadway, which is so interesting to compare that to the Blacks when like the Blacks was like the longest running off Broadway show during that decade. So like that one had like a really great reaction because it was written for the whites, but this one that was written with a more clear black perspective and more realistic take on African colonialism, was just like a lot for people to handle. A long off-Broadway run versus a one-month Broadway run tells you a lot about the audiences of off-Broadway versus Broadway, right? Like Broadway is a big risk. Broadway was always going to be a much more conservative leaning audience. The, The things that that hippie artists appreciate and will give their $15 to might be the same things that the rich middle class from Connecticut took the train with Junior to come see this play um, will reject. But I do think ultimately it is very interesting that like the one that got more traction was the white man's play. Ultimately, a white man profited more off of a black story than a black woman did right? Because of the kind of story he was telling. And even though it was extremely provocative and it is extremely forward thinking in terms of its racial theory. Because it was such an absurdist piece and because like John Janae just went there that the white audiences could also just shrug it off as like, oh, you know, someone wrote a crazy piece of theater where everyone gets sent to hell at the end. Oh, that's funny. That's crazy. Whereas this Le Blancs is like a condemnation of colonialism and there's no way around that like you are left with that well the thing i love about the way the white characters are portrayed in this play is like it is an absolute bait and switch like major rice from the jump is the big bad scary guy 
but it's insidious because all these other white people seem so nice at the beginning like dr marta is like oh you know this is just the way we do things here like the, the reporter's very incredulous and sort of like oh you you don't miss modern things and you don't miss modern conveniences and this that and the other thing she's like no it's actually really beautiful here and i think you should you know reject that mindset of you know needing all these comforts when ultimately like it's better to be here on the ground and you know at the beginning you're like yeah way to go girl like you're here you're out you're really out here like living for these villagers and then by the end when she's like well you know ultimately white people are better than black people you're like oh my god all of these white characters come and like they act so benevolent and then when you realize like like they talk about the fact that like like the nielsen's reverend and his wife were like sort of actually the root of the terrorism they are the part of the reason like the backlash against them and what they were trying to do by like keeping the village in the dark you know at the beginning march talks about oh well, we don't have all those modern conveniences and we like it that way well no it's that they forced it to stay that way they didn't want to bring modern conveniences to keep the villagers subservient to these white doctors and then that created backlash like when there was backlash politically that formed the terrorist group right hmm that sounds familiar <clears throat> yeah it's just it's such a bait and switch and i think that's part of the reason it incensed white audiences so much is it's like because they were like oh but i liked her right or like why'd you make a good person turn out to be bad right like it's very much like not clear at the beginning that these white people are are fully evil or whatever you want to call it there's those hints like marta like oh, no, we just keep things locked up around here because you never know with you know it's that that modern day liberal northern racism you know i'm not racist but you know i just don't feel comfortable around you know you know that's exactly what this is and so some audience members can pick that up right away and some audience members dare i say some broadway audience members would would be like makes total sense martha you're you're correct lock that cabinet girl in the story you could think that the main villain or the main symbol of the occupation would be like the government in major rice but it's really the mission like the mission really symbolizes the british occupation there where and like the insidious nature of it because like it's a, it's a hospital we're taking care of the native people we're teaching them english we're bringing them culture like we're we're adding so much to this environment like we are such a necessary thing and like they use their influence against the native people there because like there's moments where like chembe so like chembe like grew up on the mission that's where he learned english that's where he was taught by the people who worked there so there's one conversation between him and major rice where major rice is like you're educated you're like sophisticated why don't you like help out your brothers why don't you like teach the natives how to be good and assimilate why don't you speak up and help them out why don't you make them good like all the good white people and that all stems from what the mission did to that country and its influence on there so the facade of like the mission being like this really great hospital and thing that they're doing such good things there like once we get to the end we'll talk about it it's place there gets a little shook up I also want to be clear that while Major Rice is telling Shembe to like educate the terrorists, he's calling him boy. He's calling him a racial slur that they use in South Africa, which I won't repeat because I don't know how to say it and I don't want to 
get into that but he uses a racial slur he calls him boy like he even as he acknowledges that he's an educated man he's still just a native right it's so twisted and it really it really is so interesting that major rice is made out to be like the villain when the missionaries and like reverend nielsen are the ones they are the ones and also we never see reverend nielsen he's like god we never see him he's always off doing something until he gets killed like mm-hmm. he's very much that sort of presence that saturates this whole business without ever taking accountability or responsibility and it goes back to what the missionary in um the blacks was saying right that like i created your concept of hell i control this narrative not you and you didn't even know what this was before I came to you. And the fact that Shembe's brother, who again, I'm... Abiose. Oh no. Abiose, thank you. That Abiose is so desperate to join the mission and enough to like rat out his countrymen and so desperately trying to like assimilate into this. It shows like the power of the mission. We said it last up, the last episode, mission, missionary culture is colonialism. They are the literal OG colonizers, Right. So it makes sense that they would be a part of the Blacks as well as Le Blanc, that mission culture. And that's what Lorraine was talking about, right? Is that like mission culture as colonialism was not addressed enough in the Blacks. The Blacks was very much about just minstrelry mm-hmm. <laughs> and like the 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 absurdity or the sort of the 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 literal political theater of blackness and color but this was definitely more about like what is at the soul what is at the heart what is sort of pulsating underneath all of this and despite it being political and despite it being cultural the religious and the sort of ethical ugly heartbeat of racism is colonialism and christianity and it's really interesting Aviose's conversion to Catholicism because specifically like what is his motivation behind doing that? Because like him and his brother, him and Chembe have this conversation where like Aviose is like, I'm doing this for Africa. Like I love Africa. You left, you don't care about Africa. Like I'm everything I'm doing is for Africa. So what he was doing by converting to Catholicism, like to him, he was trying to gain a proximity to whiteness and when he did that he would be able to gain some type of power that he felt would allow him to be able to advocate for africans and for africa and we see that a lot where like some people try to graft themselves in with uh, the the majority culture who has power and just like make it work like you know what they call it like there's the leftist there's the rightist and there's like centrist like people who like try to go in the middle ground and make things work between both parties which is very hard to do when like the major culture like literally like stole your land and is oppressing you so like baby what are you doing but like that's like the reason why he's doing that like he wanted to gain power and influence so he could try to make some kind of semblance of like unity and peace in the land but like that's very complicated when he's doing it <laughs> by taking on this white man's religion and like siding with the white man we see that a lot in, in many different instances we see that a lot with our democrat and <laughs> democrats in our country today whoop, 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 whoop. that whole monologue that the missionary has in the blacks about god is white and god loves everything that's white the missionaries that are there in this town are protestant missionaries and then Abiose goes and becomes a Catholic missionary, which is assumed is what the missionary is in the Blacks. 
looking at it in the lens of the commentary between LeBlancs and the Blacks, having this Black man go out and become a Catholic missionary to kind of fulfill this idea of centrism and like, no, let's like conform a little bit, you know, it's fine. And then paralleling it with the Blacks missionary saying, you know, God is white, God loves everything that's white. I mean, it's incredible. I mean, it creates, you know, a diverse vision of what God, the creator can be like, it's, it, it distinguishes so much like the narrative, the, the narrative of God as he has become translated by people. Again, the Bible has always been translated by men, by people, by humans. And as that translation has grown, it has become so patriarchal, male dominated God has become a single patriarchal white man in the Bible because that's who has been translating the Bible, right? So like when we're thinking about ways to decolonize our space, part of it is decolonizing our idea of what spirituality has to mean. Spirituality does not have to mean one creator. Spirituality does not have to mean, you know, a structure of like a religious organization. It does not have to mean a man. Like it's just so many things that we're trying to get rid of. Um, so again, yeah, that that contrast between what Abiose thinks will bring liberation is ultimately the master's tools. In like another major part of the play is the struggle of like w- defining what Africa is because different characters feel different things about it. Obviously the white characters feel like that's their land. They often say, yeah, you might've been here first, but like, look what we brought here. Like, can't you not agree that we made this place what it is? Like we brought culture, we bought infrastructure, we bought this, we brought that. Like Major Rice is just like, these are our hills. Like, I, he's like, I have nothing against the blacks, but y'all need to not <laughs> encroach on what we brought here. And then, of course, the native population's like, um, excuse me, no, like, this is our land. Nobody said we wanted any of these things that you brought. And also, you're oppressing us. <laughs> so, like, you need to go back where you're from. Like, this is our space. You need to go back to your space. So, and it's interesting, the character of Eric, because he's mixed race. He's half white, half black. That so You would feel that he would exist between these two spaces, but... He's very much about that cause. Like when the revolution starts, he's like, where's my spear? Someone get me my motherfucking spear because I'm ready to drive the white man back into the ocean. And then Chembe comes in. He's like, <laughs> he's like, what half are you going to drive into the ocean? You half and half. <laughs> he really comes from. And then, but then also this place also honestly full of some incredible ways to describe white people. So Eric asks Shembe about his wife, who is a redhead and who is white. And Eric's like, yeah, like Dr. Marta, can you see her veins like a chicken? (laughs) (laughs) Why do you air them out like that? (laughs) And I was like, oh my God, he really just called her a chicken. And it's also, okay, honestly though, that was like a shocking moment for me because I was like, oh my God you can describe whiteness this way. Like I love describing whiteness this way because it's always been that whiteness is beautiful and blackness is bad. And so for for him to be like white people are like pale chickens. I know. Eric, Shout out to all my white people. I love you. But mm-hmm. <laughs> some of y'all do be looking like chickens. Eric is straight up like 
these white folks are ugly. <laughs> he was like, why do you like that? I don't like that. <laughs> of course, we mentioned Eric is biracial, but like his mom is Shembe's mother, but his dad, his papa, is Major Rice. Oh, my God. And I don't know how to unpack the scene where Chembe finds like makeup in Eric's bag. Like he finds like cosmetics. And like I saw the 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 National Theater's production of it, like when it was during the pandemic while I was locked up and scared for my life. I was like, child, let me go on this YouTube and escape into some theater. And I went into African colonialism. <laughs> but like in that, it's like very explicit that like he was queer and like he was like in full on like putting the lipstick on, face was beat. I don't know like what what the commentary was there exactly. To me, it honestly feels like the only sort of tone deaf or a thing that doesn't still translate because it feels packaged with Eric's alcoholism. Eric mm. is shown to be an alcoholic specifically because Dr. Dakoven is a white doctor who's giving him alcohol. And Eric is like a, a teenager, like he's very young. So it feels like dressing as a woman and drinking are like his two sort of like wild deviant traits that are supposed to show how like crazy he's become you know without the guiding hand of of um Shembe, like that he sort of run wild in this sort of way that's the way i read it mainly because you know it it seems like sexual deviancy would have been what that would be called right and mm -hmm. it's another way to show weirdness differentness him continuing to treat him as the weird one Mm -hmm. which is interesting because Lorraine Hansberry was a queer playwright so maybe maybe we're reading it wrong but maybe that was was it you know no one's perfect <laughs> I, I couldn't make sense of it to be honest I I it didn't it didn't have any like actual like narrative thread that it followed mm -hmm. anywhere um so I don't know yeah I was gonna say it might be one of those like Jonathan Larson contact rent things that got like lost in translation when playwrights died I feel like that's probably what ended up happening yeah, like we keep forgetting that like she didn't get to finish it. Like this was put together by multiple different drafts that she had. And I remember reading about it like <laughs> this is just like a, a one like side note where like in like the afterwards of the play, they were like, yeah, like in one draft, like Chembe had like this Steinbeck level, like awesome monologue that was just, like so moving. And then like in another draft, she just cut that entire monologue out. So like there's like the different drafts, like I would be interested to read each draft separately and just to see like how the vision changed and evolved. But yeah, we, we technically are reading a play that was put together posthumously. Jacob, again, also correct me if I'm wrong. You said that The Blacks was written to honor or memorialize the independence of Ghana. Mm -hmm. So that's an interesting question and a topic uh, because it was written for that and we felt like we didn't go deep enough into that. Ghana also very historically like super Catholic missionary central. Um, and, and then this being written in response to the blacks, which was written in response to Ghana being uh, declared an independent state. Mm. I don't know. I feel like there's a, there's a thread there because I feel like Lorraine is saying, but are you really telling the story of, of independence? Yeah. It's interesting because like during this time, I'm pretty sure apartheid was something that had already begun by the time like this was produced on Broadway. I'm pretty sure. Um, I could be wrong. I could look that up. When did apartheid start? But like they, but like he mentions it, like Chembe mentions like, oh, I've seen your American apartheid 
when he was talking about like segregation, like when he visited the state. So I'm pretty sure that began in the 40s and in the 40s until the 1990s. If this fictional nation is supposed to be South Africa, then apartheid would have been a very established system by this point. And just to think about that, like it was very specifically like, of course, apartheid was basically like segregation in South Africa to the point where like each you know, racial group was like very specific, like you live in this area, you live in this area, there's rules, you can't cross the lines. And like all of the native black folks were put in like, basically the worst areas of the country they were forced to live in. And it just makes a sense when you think about the mission and it being so specifically and intentionally not, you know, not with modern times and it being like backwards. It's just like, oh yeah, that makes sense because like, in real South Africa, that's how it was. They, they were specifically made sure the areas that the native people were living in were not up to date with like medical facilities, agriculture. So it's, it's also another interesting thing that we can bring up is like why Lorraine decided to make this country a fictional African country when it's like so clearly she's trying to say that it's like it's South Africa. I feel like it's a, an FBI red scare type. But mm, you're right. They were after her. They're just yeah, like not I mean, too much, she, Lorraine. Not too she much. She died in 1965, which was bo- before um, the Voting Rights Act passed. So like segregation was still actively going on when she died. So that might be why she was like, well, let's not let's not get too crazy with this. I think it also lends to sort of like creating a mythos for this um, play. Like as I've said <laughs> multiple times, this play is so epic and in terms of scale and scope and story that it almost feels like it needs to transcend in terms of a fictional place, but in order to tell a real story, right? Like it has to be there so we can have some sort of heightened things. We can have the village burning down and we can have, you know, the literal fucking drag ass reveal of the clerical garments Albiose enters the top of the play with like this giant sort of like blanket on and he and Shembe have this whole conversation and then Shembe's like you have to get out of that for the funeral now and he like pulls the blanket away and reveals like a full clerical garb and I was like if that is not a full reveal a full drag race reveal a full drag race reveal I don't know what is um but like again like the you know sort of creating the grandiosity grandiosity of the world requires it to be somewhere not real even if you're using cribbing notes from a lot of real places Mm -hmm. um i do want to quickly talk about though we're talking about the way that africa has been represented in this play we're forgetting the woman Mm -hmm. there's a character in this play called the woman and she doesn't speak she comes out at the top of the play and does this beautiful dance she sort of shows up to like represent the true spirit of africa i guess Mm -hmm. like she she you know sort of leads shembe as he goes on this journey towards becoming more revolutionary um she appears and sort of like a like a sort of like spirit i want to say spirit guide but like that's not really what i mean but that's kind of what i mean not not a specifically like native spirit guide but like a literal Mm -hmm. guide who is a spirit um to sort of guide him. So I was wondering if, if, if as her character, how did you think her character worked or functioned within the play? She is basically like, like throughout the play, uh, Shembe is struggles with like his connection to, to Africa. Like, of course he was born there. He grew up there. He went out into the world. He went somewhere else. And like throughout most of the play, he's like dying to get back to Europe. He says, I just want to go back to my wife. 
I want to just like sit down, play with my kid, eat dinner with my family. Like I just like I just came here to say goodbye to dad and like this would be my goodbye to Africa totally. So like I can totally just like take myself out of this situation. But like after certain scenes, like she keeps appearing to him. He sometimes sees her and yells at her and is like, "What? <laughs> Why are you following me?" <laughs> so it's interesting because she's. She, she never gets to be like a full character, but like she's integral to Shembe's like um, his arc. So it's, it's, it's interesting there where like her place in the stories could, is like a tool for this man to go on this full discovery of like, oh, I actually am about that life. I am about the revolution. I have to stay here and protect Africa. Yeah. And I feel like there's something there with like having something to ground you and you know she's the first one that's introduced after we get this five minutes of audio immersion leading you into the world of the play and bringing the characters through the story of the play and and keeping Shembe grounded as as that happens i think um is important and also like i mean feel free to drag me for this allah or like the mysterious man in into the woods gives that vibe of like dropping Paths in the right direction, and obviously that ends up being a whole separate thing because that's the dad and the narrative. Whatever, we're not talking about that. We're talking about like it's it's like leading the character down the right path. My final question is, you know, we've created these episodes as sort of companion pieces in conversation with each other. How well do we think LeBlanc actually responds to the blacks as a piece? Mm. Does it, is it a direct response? Has it, did it sort of outgrow that and become its own thing? What do we think? Yeah. And this is something I wanted to talk about because like, it's interesting that the blacks and LeBlanc, they both end up in the same place where like the black characters rise up and overthrow and kill the white characters. Happens in the blacks. That's what happens at the end of LeBlanc. I feel like they get there in such different ways where like in the blacks, it's sort of seems like power is almost just like, it's as easily flipped as like changing out the mask that you're wearing. So like power is kind of like this thing that's easily shift. Whereas in like LeBlanc, power is not so easily transferred in that way. And it's like, it's very specific how colonialism and imperialism and American imperialism makes it impossible for black folks to actually regain power because there's often like a lot of these discussions where just like this is an annoying thing where like Kanye West is like why didn't the slaves fight back or just like some racist white people are just like why did the black people let themselves be enslaved like why didn't they fight back it's just like when you have major institutions and countries like America destabilizes countries constantly like once you have a major power destabilize you it's not it's not easy to regain that power and fight back. So I feel like LeBlanc describes that really, really well, whereas like that's not as much of a factor in the Blacks. So I feel like if we're looking at it from that standpoint, it's a really great response to the Blacks. But I also feel like you can watch LeBlanc, because I saw LeBlanc before I read the Blacks, and I was like, this is epic, this is amazing. Like, why doesn't it get this produced more? So I also feel, I feel like it works as a response to the Blacks. And I also feel that it works as its play in and of itself. I don't think at the very beginning or like right when I finished it, I was thinking, you know, oh, this is an obvious response to the Blacks. Uh, because we're looking at it through that frame and because we know the context of it, obviously 
it becomes more and more clear. I think Le Blanc stands alone fully. I think like Le Blanc's in like commentary with Book of Mormon is more like like on the nose, you know? Y'all, do um, we have to do an episode about Book of Mormon? This is ridiculous at this I point. Genuinely, I genuinely <laughs> don't want to. Like that's the issue. The trilogy. I don't either. I really don't. I really don't want to do it. Maybe, maybe because we mentioned it three times, like it'll just be done. It's the end of its cycle. Like, sound off in the comments. Do you actually want us to do a book of like for real? Do you want us to do a book of Mormon episode? Because none of us really want to. But if that's what the people want, and we keep bringing it up, well, then maybe we need to. We might have to. Yeah. Jacob was making of how they get there in very different means. Um, how they get to their endings in very different means. I think that perfectly is encapsulated by the quote that we didn't talk about that that starts this play off um, by Frederick Douglass. And it, it is a long quote, but I will just read the first sentence because that's really all we need. If there is no struggle, there is no progress. That's exactly what Lorraine said, like throughout this play, not to say that like the characters in the blacks just like kind of, you know, were there for uh, 80 pages and then like overcame things. But this play, LeBlanc's, really encapsulates the struggle to overcome. And it is both physical and moral struggle. Um, Since you said that, I do want to read the second part of this quote. It is very long, but I'll, I'll read another part. Another part of it is, um, this struggle may be a moral one, or it may be a physical one, and it may be both moral and physical, but it must be a struggle. Power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did, and it never will. Find out just what any people will quietly submit to, and you have found out the exact measure of injustice and wrong which will be imposed upon them. And these will continue till they are resisted with other words or blows or both. Damn. Mm. Mm. And one final critique that like you can see uh, Lorraine Hansberry doing uh, in terms of like the, in response to the Blacks. So like, as we said, like in our episode, the Blacks, like the story is basically like the Black characters playing the fool to distract the white characters so then they can make them the fools and overthrow them. And we see Lorraine showing how unrealistic that would be in real life with the character of Peter. So as we said, Peter was the cousin and he was one of the leaders of the revolutionary group but he was also someone who was around the mission. And there's one scene where like Major Rice interacts with him and like Peter pretends to be like, like he speaks in broken English and we see in other scenes that he speaks perfect English. So like he's trying to downplay himself and play into these African stereotypes to play the fool. So like, he, he, so he can pretend to be like, I'm what you think of me. I'm not this threat. I'm not this danger while in the shadows, I'm planning to overthrow you. And that doesn't work out because Major Rice still kills him in the end. So like that's Lorraine's response of just like, no, you can't distract these people by playing the fool and playing into these stereotypes. Like that's not how you shift power whatsoever. Like they still got it and they still going to kill you. <laughs> I think that's ultimately like for me, of course, this is personal taste, why I like the Blanc better than the Blacks. Because ultimately I don't feel like the way absurdism was used in that play was successful, it, at least for me, right? Like it was powerful and super interesting and like super, still super provocative. And I don't take back anything of what I said last week, right? Like I still think it's a play that deserves to be produced, the Blacks, I mean. But ultimately one of the things that I have a problem with with absurdism often is just like 
it doesn't actually reflect the ways that real people operate in a way that sometimes is to their detriment. To make fun of something or to blow something out of proportion, to make a point, sometimes when it is ineffectively used can just feel soft. And as much as the Blacks is sharp and provocative in the way that that it ultimately tell like like says that you can play the fool it's soft because it's not true it just it was hard for me to like get into that part of it to really grasp but like if there is a message of the blacks it is that black people can operate this way um so i appreciated that about LeBlanc is that it was like this is what this is actually what real struggle is and what it is is it's pain and it's torture and it's turning against each other and and it's questioning your faith and it's questioning you know the your roots um and it's all-encompassing in a way that that the blacks did not feel all-encompassing well I guess that leads us to our final question here we are ladies and gentlemen I said it once, I'll say it again. If y'all don't start motherfucking producing this play in your season, this needs to take the classical slot that August Wilson gets all the time. You want to produce August Wilson again? Do LeBlanc instead. Don't do Raisin in the Sun, do LeBlanc. And again, do it. Don't make it a diversity slot. Do it in, in, in a season in conversation with other things. But this play is so motherfucking good. And it deserves to be up there with the greats. It, preserve, it deserves to be... A season staple so if y'all don't get your shit together and do this play you better and quick yeah yeah i think this is a play you know we see it every season where there's like a play that like slowly starts sweeping all across the country of like oh every regional theater is programming that play this this deserves her flowers 100 percent um this needs to be up there especially now um, you need to have the Frederick Douglass quote sitting in the lobby, a hundred percent. And like, you can't even fool me that you're like, well, you know, our audiences won't like this. Like, it's spectacle. Like, it, you can get spectacle out of this show. Your audience will eat it up, and you know it. So, what are you doing? Like, program if this. They show. can watch a view from the bridge, and Arthur Miller absolute craziness and still find that palatable then they can find this palatable or is it or is it the black people that you're actually taking offense to Hmm. put this show on stage right now yeah it's truly like a masterpiece and i believe her how she felt about it she felt like this was one of her most important works she felt it was her magnum opus and like that the material is there and it's so sad to see that this has basically sat around on shelves and just not been produced as widely as other ones been like we said earlier in the show (laughs) raising the sun unfortunately has become like this diversity slot very easy whitewash this is just about american families this isn't really so much about the black struggle or if they do talk about it it's not as um it's not as radical or um, steeped in protest as it was in its original production. So like, you you can bring that with LeBlanc, like that ending scene where the revolutionaries come and burn down the mission. Like this, 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 like we said, this image of the British occupation, like 
if I was in the audience, the relief I would feel I'd be like, yes, burn the bitch down. <laughs> like audience members, we we need that. We would like we would like to see it. So give it to us. Before we head out, I just want to say thank you everyone that has supported our partnership with Off Root Art so far. It has been a absolute blessing to be able to micro commission. Um, some of these amazing artists. If you've been seeing these episode art covers, you know how amazing they are. So keep on supporting, please. And so we can keep hiring these wonderful uh, young digital artists. All right. Thanks. We'll see you all next week. <laughs>